Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode five, Missing at Death's Door. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. When we left off, the crew of LaSalle Toop at Death's Door. The water this November day had been churning and the wind was blowing and the expedition had a really tough time trying to cross that infamous body of water between Washington Island and Door County. There were four members in the canoe. The canoe is not in sight. As you know, as a mariner, the French didn't pick this name Death's Door or Port de Mort. They just didn't take it out of a hat. It's an infamous area of rocks and rough. Uh, there's really no easy access to shore, and so there is quite a few shipwrecks in that area along Door County. And as you know, November is a terrible time to be on Lake Michigan or Lake Superior or any of the Great Lakes in certain conditions. I mean, the Edmund Fitzgerald went down in the gales of November. I've been dying to hear the rest of this. Where do we go from here? Did you use the word dying on purpose because we're talking about Death Star? Oh, sorry. I mean, I hope nobody gets hurt in this. I'll feel really bad then. Let's set the stage. So the expedition members notice that there's a canoe missing. The weather is awful. Rich Gross, who was there yes. that day, he picks up the story of what happened next. The canoe that I was with broached and filled with water. Now you've got four guys in a canoe, and it's just above freezing. We're a quarter mile from shore. We can't have these guys turn over. I mean, if they do, we're in trouble. So we pull over right next to them immediately, and then another boat pulls in next to them like that, form like a catamaran, and we actually paddled them into shore. But when we got into shore, we're looking around and go, where's Bill's canoe? We lost a canoe. We couldn't see him, he wasn't with us. We didn't know where it was. And now the waves are way over 10 feet, they're crashing. So it was a moment of panic. Lorraine Boissonneau, author of The Last Voyageurs. For everyone who was on shore, because they'd left this boat out there, they didn't realize in the tumult of what had been happening with the canoe that almost sank. And so here's Reed Lewis, who's kind of responsible for all these guys, and the canoe happened to be the only one with only teenagers in it. So four teenage guys who are out there by themselves, don't have many of their supplies with them and have just gone for a swim in really cold water. And and the water was like 38 or 39 degrees at this point. So hypothermia was really a big issue. It does not take long to get hypothermia in that kind of temperature. Yeah, and you did a really good job of conveying the angst of that moment because there's no cell phones, right? So Reed Lewis is hunting for a payphone to call the Coast Guard. And then he discovers they don't have any boats because they pulled the boats out of the water. Oh, it's so late in the season at that point. Even Chicago, pretty much the boats are out of the harbor by November 15th at the absolute latest. So So he's sweating bullets, and then Reed Lewis is in loco parentis, so he's just like... Beside himself. I was actually in Reed's canoe, so I heard a lot. (laughs) (laughs) No one would go out on the lake. You couldn't get a fisherman. The Coast Guard said it was too rough. We can't send a boat. They sent a helicopter to look for these guys. And the helicopter flew over Washington Island, and I remember we're listening. Someone had a radio, we were listening there. They said, well, we can see the canoe, but no survivors. (laughs) 
And we're, we're thinking, now, wait a minute. We know what it looked like out there. We know we could stand on that shoal. Yeah. So we said, okay, there's only one thing we can do. We got our canoes, all our gear out of the canoes, and we put together crews real quick, and out we went to Washington Island because we could manage the waves. So out we went to Washington Island, and there we found them. They'd stripped down all their freezing cold clothes off, got into a couple sleeping bags that were mostly dry, and they were shivering, all hypothermic. Oh, yeah. One of the guys with a flint and steel and a, and a half a pound of gunpowder starts a fire to warm them. Well, we ferried them back into shore, so we did our own rescue that day. Actually, what happened was the canoe broached, filled with water, then the next wave flipped them. So all four oh. of them were in the water. Mm. So they're hanging onto the gunnels, and the water is only maybe four feet, five feet deep. So when you've got a 10-foot wave, you're underwater 10 feet, and when you've got to the trough of the wave, you're able to walk. So they pushed the canoe to Washington Island. When they got to Washington Island, they cut their gear loose and got up on the shore. The bow of the canoe was crushed on one of the rocks. Mm. But that was a good thing because the water drained out of the canoe, it lifted up and took off out in the lake. So most of our gear floated into shore and we found the canoe several miles down around the corner in the only sandy bay and we pulled it out and we were able to send it back to Chicago where Ralph Reese worked on it for two days and sent it right back up and <laughs> wow. three days later we're back in the canoes. <laughs> Can't let that slow us down. on Ralph. He was going to count on Ralph. Two of the guys went down, and they, they told a story. And the last time we got together, they were telling a story about how they suffered in Ralph's shop. I mean, you have to have the temperature above 65 degrees, or the fiberglass won't cure. Oh. Well, and to make it cure quicker, you turn it up to 80 degrees. Oh. 90 degrees. The fat, you got to get the and glass. These guys are used to being outdoors. And these guys and are used to being outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, so they're sleeping there, you know, butt naked, sleeping in Ralph's shop because they're, they got the temperature turned up, but they got it. They got it fixed. They got it turned around. And when we got it back, you couldn't see the damage. And was Ralph like, what have you done to my canoe? No, he was just glad that everybody was still alive. Yeah. He was really happy that the canoe made it because, you know, it's going to take four or five months to build one of those things. It's interesting. When we had that event up in Washington Island where the canoe tipped. Reed Lewis, who came up with the concept of LaSalle 2. A year or two later, there was a couple up there doing some scuba diving, looking for artifacts and whatnot, and they found one of these iron pots, a couple iron pots, and they took it to the museum up there on Washington Island and said, artifacts from the Voyager. And he said, I don't think it's as old as you think it is. <laughs> yeah, I will put this at maybe two years old. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> we were recording this on December 10th, um, 2018, and, and this is about the time you came to Chicago. Uh, sure. I think it was kind of aimed around Christmas because you, you would take a little break. December 18th, actually, yeah. when we got to Chicago, uh, we paddled all the and way. This is 1976. 1976 right. in Chicago in December, there was a big event set up for us at Adler Planetarium. They had a big banquet set up, glasses mm. with ice in them, and it, the whole shebang, you know, it was, wow. it was a, real, a real big deal. We never made it because <laughs> uh, we encountered pack ice up in Evanston. And instead oh. of being able to paddle all the way down, we got stuck trying to get into the water. And then by the time we actually accessed the water, we portaged, we, we put all our gear on, on sleds and we portaged them around this obstruction. By the time we got onto the water, we only had enough light to make it to Belmont Harbor. It's dangerous on Lake Michigan in the summer. Compound that with ice forming and then pack ice coming in and the waves, yeah. there's no way we could afford to be on Lake Michigan at night in December. It just, it right. was a really, it would be a dumb thing to do. We actually pulled into Belmont Harbor, and there we stayed for several days. We had many events to attend in Chicago. So yeah. we missed the big landing at Adler Planetarium, but then people came to see us, and we continued our tour of Chicago from there. We went back to Elgin and gave presentations there. So, Patrick, 
Chris. LaSalle was no stranger to Chicago. No, he had come through the Chicago area a couple different times. He had three different voyages that he's known for. There was the first one. He leaves Montreal or Lachine in July of 1669, which he ends up down on the Ohio River. There's some controversy that he might have made it to the Mississippi, but he got sick in the middle of that, and so the counts vary, and then later returns a year or so later. Then there was a second one, which is the one that the LaSalle II expedition retraced. This is the Bicentennial Expedition. Yes. Expedition Two is going from Montreal down to the Gulf of Mexico, and he arrives at the mouth of the Mississippi on April 9th, 1682, when he claims Louisiana for France. There was a third expedition that many people are not aware of. Right, but we referred to it in our first episode, where that's the expedition where he's visited the king in France and gotten his endorsement to then start a colony and comes back on in four ships and lands in Texas instead of at the Gulf of Mexico. He didn't have a GPS? I'm not sure that those were available at that time. Maybe his navigator was drunk. The maps at that time were not very accurate either, so Mm -hmm. it's easy that he could have missed the Gulf of Mexico. And then he's killed, but then Henri Jutel continues on with LaSalle's brother and several others, and they go up through the Illinois area to get to Fort St. Louis, which is at Starved Rock, and then pass through the Chicago Portage, or the Chicago area, which then the Indians tell him has to do with those wild onions ramps that grow in the area. These are the ramps that Henri Jatel heard about because it was October. Right. So he would not have seen them in season. But comes back in the spring, and he learns that, hey, there are these wild onions growing here as well that are nutritious and helpful, especially if you're out as a French for a trader or voyager foraging for food because you don't carry everything, you can't carry everything with you. So this is really the first time the word Chicago is ever written down. And defined, yes, yeah. absolutely. So this is uh, a marker, by, a milestone. By, at least by Western civilizations. Yeah, absolutely, standards. this yeah. is Algonquian word. And as John Swenson tells us, the word Chicago, even if I'm saying it properly, meant skunk, and mm-hmm. also referred to this plant, this Allium trachocum, or ramps. It's not a stinky smell. It's actually a, a rather lovely smell. That onion, garlic yeah. smell. It's an appealing smell yep. if you like that kind of a thing. So that gives folks context to mm-hmm. LaSalle. He came after Marquette and Joliet and then had his three different expeditions. The final one was ill-fated when he gets killed in 1687. Down in Texas. Yeah. historians... Put us in Chicago at that time when they were coming through. Yeah, so at that point it was kind of becoming clear that this was going to be a rough winter. Sometimes winter is not so bad, but this one was going to be really bad. And they could tell because the lake was freezing kind of as they paddled through it. There was ice forming, especially along the shoreline, which made it really hard to launch the boats and to land the boats because you don't want to damage the canoes. You also don't want to fall through the ice. So it's really hard if the body that you're launching from if you don't have docks. Everyone is starting to get cold at this point and the days are much shorter. So, you know, the light is gone by 4.30 or 5 and Mm -hmm. being on icy water when there's not much light and it's really cold is really dangerous. So I think that is, it's not the first time, but definitely one of the big beginnings of a flare up over how are we going to keep doing this? How do we keep everyone safe? There were definitely guys who thought about quitting at that point. Plus, you know, in Chicago, that's the area that all their families are. So they're seeing family and friends and they have sort of the comfort of home and the homesickness coming up. Sure, it'd be easy to bail there. Yeah. So there were people who wanted to bail who were legitimately concerned if they kept going, they would be risking their lives. Well, Elgin's 45 minutes away to an hour if there's traffic and they could be home in that amount of time, right? Yeah. So we stayed there for a few days, and then, then the pack ice came in. The weather never gave us a break at all. We were able to get out of Chicago at Belmont Harbor, and we paddled down past the planetarium. We made it down to East Chicago, Indiana, where we finally put in down there. And when the pack ice came into the south end of the lake, it never went away. Sometimes oh. the pack ice will leave, but it, it wouldn't. So yeah. we had walls of ice 10 feet tall, you know, 100 yards out in the lake. We couldn't get our canoes in the water. And if we could get the canoes in the water, we weren't able to land. I was trying to think... But I remembered something that happened around the time of the Voyageurs passing through, 
when they were in Gary, Indiana, it was December 19th, the next day Mayor Daley died, Richard J. Daley died, which was huge, eclipsed any news. And I remember that very distinctly because he'd been mayor for, you know, 20 some years or something. And, and that sucked the oxygen out of everything. So unfortunately for Reed Lewis and these guys, whatever publicity they wanted from the region was just not going to be there. Right. And I think that was a problem they had in most of the big cities that they visited. There's just so much else going on that mm. they're not the main attraction. They just can't compete with all the other things. And there's so many people to try and reach. So they did radio programs in Toronto. And I think they might have done one in Chicago. But still they had a lot better response from smaller towns where they were the big thing that was going to be in time like the circus not yeah. that they were a circus sure, act, sure. but in the same way because you wanted to go to st joseph I we're think. on our way up to st joe michigan we did some scouting and we saw well the st joe river's open what our job to do was to paddle up the st joe river to south bend indiana and mm -hmm. we take the portage from south bend over to the kankakee river then we paddle the Kankakee River down, down to Illinois. Dresden, where the Illinois is, and yep. then they paddle down the Illinois. We know LaSalle took that route. On the 81-82 expedition, he actually went back up to Chicago and took the Chicago River. But rather than repeat what we'd already done, come through Chicago, we just decided to add more people to it, so we went the southern route, which is a route that LaSalle took. LaSalle did wind up walking. In, in 1681, LaSalle walked from St. Joe, Michigan, down the southern part of the lake up to Chicago. Then they walked from Chicago down to about where Beardstown, Illinois is. So it was a long hike. So we decided to do what LaSalle did. We walked. So we walked from East Chicago, Indiana, up to St. Joe, Michigan. And the reason we did that is we uh, walked up to St. Joe, Michigan, where we found the St. Joe River open. Big celebration the next day. We went to paddle our canoes and the river was frozen. What, what are we going to do? Uh, well, we stored the canoe. We couldn't pull the canoes. We couldn't walk the canoes. They're too heavy. So we stored the canoes and we walked. And we walked down to Niles, Michigan, where we got the canoes back. We built sleds. Couldn't pull the canoe by itself over the ice. So we, no. we built sleds for it. And we accomplished the South Bend Portage. Oh, I think that's a six-mile portage on the St. Joseph River. We walked from there. We drug our sleds over to a drainage ditch that is now the, one of the headwaters of the Kankakee River. When we got there, the water was open. We were yeah. real happy. So we knew how to portage. We knew sure. what we were doing. So when we got the South Bend portage, it was actually easier because we had the, the sleds. We didn't have to carry the canoes. You know, each of those canoes weighs upwards 175 pounds. Did you feel like Ernest Shackleton or something? We, we, I, I, don't, I don't know what Shackleton <laughs> felt like, but I was frozen. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Admiral Scott. Yeah, or... right. We were using authentic clothing, so we did this entire expedition in leather moccasins, oh, moccasins yeah. that we all made. So yeah. I had wool socks and leather moccasins, yeah. and the moccasins would freeze. Literally, you'd either sleep with your moccasins underneath you, oh, or you'd man. get up in the morning by the fire and you'd thaw your moccasins out. Get your moccasins on your feet, then they'd freeze, and off you'd go. So oh, we're goodness. walking in frozen moccasins, which was a problem all in itself. Sounds slippery. But we stayed, you know, you stay to the snow, try to stay off as much ice as you can. But yeah. we managed that. We got to the Kankakee River. We paddled maybe two miles that day and then encountered ice. And then we tried a few more days, and it just got to the point where the Kankakee River was freezing, so we knew we were in trouble. So then it became, okay, well, we'll store the canoes. First, we tried to pull the canoes. Then we said, well, remember, we have a place to be every night. And yeah. these destinations are sometimes 15, 20 miles apart. And if we're making three miles a day walking, we're never going to get to where we need to be. So we abandoned our canoes, we stored them, and we carried all our gear, built a big tent, so everybody sleep under that, we called it the circus tent. Made up two big tarps and a bunch of canoe paddles while everybody had a piece to carry. And speaking of circus, I mean, tell us about their kind of winter encampment, what it looked like. Oh yeah, like a circus tent. When, well, when it became clear that the rivers were icing over too quickly and they were putting the canoes at risk, um, they had been sleeping under the canoes with tarps pulled across them turning mm -hmm. it into a tent. But when they had to abandon them, they just made a tent with the tarps and their paddles, and it looked like a big circus tent. All the guys slept underneath it. Mm -hmm. And we're talking, it, it was could have been, you know, 20 below zero outside. Yeah. And they were in, in this. Yeah, they slept outside every night except for one. And you also described at one point uh, that Jim let them, like, use it, and they, they were really uncomfortable. Yeah. 
indoors. It was too just, warm. Yeah. It was making them almost nauseous. Yeah. I don't know that everyone was happy being that cold all the time, but they definitely, their bodies adjusted to it. So being in heated buildings was really uncomfortable. So every night we'd set the, the circus tent up and get as far as we could. You know, we'd walk 20 miles a day. So oh. we couldn't even paddle at that point. But we lived outside. We camped outside. We spent every night outside. So we became acclimated to the temperatures. When we would go into a building, guys would strip down to their underwear. We were just dying to go into a building. It was horrible. And not only was it bad just the temperature, but think about going into, the, into a school where you've got, I don't know, two or 300 kids and half of them have a cold or half of them yeah, have the right. flu. I know I got the flu three times on the expedition. We saw millions of people. And we did have to go into where they were, though, because they weren't going to come out and stay with us. We'd sit around the campfire. We'd finally get back outside and we'd get our clothes back on. The snow was blowing sideways. It didn't matter to us. You know, just turn your back. It's okay. Sit by ah. the fire, it's nice and warm, but we were really adjusted living that way. Yeah. And we, we lived at that time, we went through what was at that time the worst winter in recorded history in the Midwest. And it's kind of amazing how the human body will adjust like that. We adjusted, and it was, like yeah. you said, it was difficult to go into a warm place. We slept in a teepee one night that was really nice. And I can remember being in that teepee, and it must have been, it had to get up to 45, 50 degrees, and I was dying. I was just down to, you know, <laughs> nothing but underwear. I was sleeping <laughs> on top of the, the, uh, yeah. the sleeping bag because it's just too hot. We stuck to the rivers as much as we could, but then it snowed. The problem with walking on ice on a river when it snows is the layer of snow actually acts as an insulator. And the ice below decays, and you run the risk of falling through, which we did. Many times. Fortunately, the Kankakee's not very deep. Oh. Two, three feet deep is all it is there. Is They're really drainage ditches. Well, it's the middle of wintertime. There's not a lot of liquid oh, yeah, water yeah. around, and, okay. the, and the water table drops. Okay, okay. So um, the water was pretty shallow. Did, did you fall through? Uh, everybody fell through. You wow. get close to shore, you fall through. You know you go up to your hip, or you go through your leg. What is that like? I mean, I've seen Scary that. Scary as heck. Because <laughs> I've done some ice boating, yeah. and they you see where they give the ice boaters these uh, two ice picks on a string. Right that you run through your sleeves so that if you do fall in in the middle of a lake on a, off an ice boat, you can at least kind of get yourself out. And right. It was cold. Patrick, that winter of 1976 to 1977 was one of the most brutal ones on record. Glad I was not in the area at that time, although in Ohio it was probably pretty bad too, but I don't really remember. Well, you were busy sledding or having <laughs> could, fun. Could very well be. Because you were like, you know, how old were you in 1976, 77? So I would have been uh, like 12 years old. Okay. Yeah. So you were out having fun. This was great. If you're a kid, winter's the, the best time of all. Snowball fights, ice skating, skiing, it's a great time. But if you're a voyageur, it's a terrible time. Yeah, the rivers are frozen. You then are forced to walk. So what happened was the LaSalle 2 crew, as Rich Gross has been telling us, has been just trying to deal with this intense weather. Lake Michigan froze up. The various rivers they've been trying to go on have been freezing, and they've been trudging on the Kankakee now, and that's not really working out. And I got to imagine this is throwing off their schedule, and they're yeah, falling absolutely. off the route or the timing. By January 11th, they decide to abandon the Kankakee. They can't deal with it because of the ice breaking, so they decide to switch to the roads. Right. Now that's going to cause its own issues because you're dealing with public roads. Yeah. Rich Gross picks up the story from there. We walked on the roads. Right after we abandoned the river that same day, Hebron, Indiana, we were walking along the highway, all in a single file, and it began to snow. It was just one of those, one of those days on the south end of the lake where you get all the lake effect snow. I can remember a, a cattle truck, like a two-ton cattle truck, come by, he slowed down. But I could hear the semi coming, and he wasn't slowing. We carried our packs using what's called a tump line, which is a leather strap across your forehead, mm -hmm. and then two ropes to go behind. You prop this bag up, up on top of your back and shoulders, kind of lean over a little bit, hunch over with your head down, watch your feet as you walk. So I remember hearing the truck and I remember looking up, and then I heard crunch.
the cattle truck was driven through our line of marchers and it ran over four of our guys. Oh, oh my God. Two of them never came back. One of them life-threatening injuries. They were all hurt pretty bad. So. I know in the book, the sense of dread. What do you do? What do you do? What so do you what do you do? do? Reed's at the hospital with the guys. The parents were called. They all came in. Oh, yeah. And we had the job of talking to these kids. Ken Lewis, Reed's older brother, who participated on both the Marquette, Joliet, and the LaSalle II expedition. And asking them whether we should abandon the expedition. We said, we're leaving it up to you. They're in hospital beds now. Oh, boy. We said, if you think... It's too dangerous to keep on with it. We'll end it right here. And the kids, the crew members, said, Are you kidding? After all we've been through to abandon and declare all the work we've been doing for the last three months null and void. So you got to finish the expedition for our sake. All we ask is that you leave an empty spot in the canoe where we were paddling. We don't want somebody to replace us. So we said, we can do it. So we set out with a reduced crew and carried on just as before. Reed Lewis. The parents, too, were very strong in saying, we cannot come this far. Yeah, after all we've done. Yeah, and that's not going to help the kids. And as soon as they're well enough to at least get back with the liaison team, we carry down. Everybody decided, you know, we don't want to give up on this. We've come too far. We're, we're in the midst of this. Let's finish it. Even the guys that were hurt said, no, finish. Yeah. So we lost two of our members at that point. They uh, were so badly broken. The bones were broken so badly that they never were able to rejoin us. Eventually, further on down, they rejoined us with casts on, and they would come to do the presentations with us. You know, yeah. They were still our voyageur. We would visit, but two of the guys were knocked out for sure, and they, and they joined us. Uh, at, so we wound up walking from South Bend, Indiana, all the way down the Kankakee River, the entire length of the Illinois River. And we got to the Mississippi River, and you couldn't paddle on the Mississippi. It was frozen or floating ice, so we walked down to Chester, Illinois. We wound up walking about 525 miles. Oh, that's LaSalle's walk wasn't quite as long. He walked probably <laughs> 300 miles, but we wow. walked a bit more than he did. Oh so God. then we got our canoes back south of St. Louis, Chester, so, Illinois, the home okay. of Popeye, Popeye the Sailor Man. That's where it got Chester, was... Illinois, sure. Oh, so you didn't encounter the Missouri then? Alton, uh, and then the Missouri. It's okay. just north of St. Louis, but we walked by that, right? I wanted to ask you, when you encountered the Ohio River, could mm-hmm. you feel it? We camped right at the point. Okay. There's a park right there where the Mississippi and the Ohio River come together. And the Ohio River is actually bigger than the Mississippi at that Yeah, point. that's what I hear. Yeah, I big. hear the volume is really tremendous. It's massive. And that poor little town of Cairo, my mother lived in Cairo as a little girl. The town has just been devastated by the floods, by the floods because not only do you have the Mississippi, which floods all the time, you've got the Ohio River and, and it just floods and floods. The currents are really, really strong there. And the barges are massive because they're going, you know, they split, they go up in both directions. They go oh, north and then they go to the east. Patrick, when we interviewed Lorraine Boissonneau about the last Voyageurs and Reed Lewis and Rich Gross, I thought, well, it's great that we're interviewing these people who were involved or wrote about this historic reenactment, but I thought it'd be neat to reach out to someone who actually had recently also canoed the Mississippi River. So you knew Paul Meineke. I knew that Paul was a, a student of history, and we had talked about some historical Chicago events. Well, and you had mentioned that he had done a trip from the headwaters of the Mississippi down to the Gulf of Mexico, and I was intrigued of how about we talk to this guy about the physicality in particular of what it's like to go day after day paddling down the river. Right, and for those of you that watched ABC 7 Eyewitness News, Paul is mostly retired after 30 years of general assignment reporting and has a 45-year career in broadcast journalism that began right next to the Mississippi, Patrick, in Rock Island, Illinois. Oh, wow. 
And when Paul sets out to do something, he does it with style, and he also doesn't set small goals for himself. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and has twice bicycled across the United States. So in 2017, Paul and three friends set out to canoe the Mississippi from its source to its sea on a 70-day journey. So they started up in Minnesota and got all the way down to the Gulf and ended up in New Orleans. They started at the headwaters, which is just a trickle, really, a stream. And Paul also, being a broadcaster, he documented it with photos and video. And I think he, he had some GoPro cameras mounted on the boats. and He did. It was and pretty cool. It was very cool. And he also has an amazing documentary on YouTube. Yeah, I think it's about an hour long or so that captures the journey. It's called Mississippi by Canoe. And we recommend that anyone who's interested in this topic to check it out. It's a tremendous film. So we reached out to Paul. We were just learning how to turn on the equipment and, and, <laughs> and figure it all out. And Paul was very gracious and invited us to his beautiful home. And we met his lovely wife and we had a just a wonderful afternoon talking. And I thought it would be appropriate for not only the LaSalle 2 Expedition podcast to get a perspective of what it's like to canoe the Mississippi now. Sure. As opposed to 1976 and, you know, the 1680s. So we had such a good time talking to Paul that we are going to turn that interview into its own episode. And I guess one could say this is part of our Canoe Chronicles. Sure. So perhaps instead of calling it laying the foundation, we should call it laying the keel. <laughs> Because that seems to be what we're doing. If we're sticking to the water. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. see. We made, or I'm sure we'll deviate and get on land uh, shortly. So let's listen to that interview with Paul Meineke. I kind of wanted to do this to get back to my roots. My hometown is on the river. And yeah. as I said, it, you know, I took it for granted. It's the Mississippi. Okay. Did, did you grow up paddling on the Mississippi no, at all or no. anything like that? Or? Nope. Okay. I, did, I did not. I had not paddled on the on the Mississippi. Sandbagged on the Mississippi. Oh, we did a lot of that. 64. 65. 65. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big flood. We were. Everyone was allowed to get out of school, and go sandbag to save our town. You know. Yeah. And so that was a, that made for a sense of pride that a lot of my classmates still talk about to this day. But yeah, I mean, we have all the tools that the early explorers didn't have, but still, you're on a body of water that can be very angry and unpredictable, and so you cannot take it lightly. Yeah. And to see what we saw, changing landscape, changing wildlife, and yet humanity that's still there to welcome you, um, as I suspect some of the early explorers found. Well, I know Father Marquette and Joliet, they had goodies with them. Different trade goods, some beads and some cloths, vermilion the red oxide that the Indians like to use for painting and that, and skeins of yarn, things like that, that would be light, easy to carry, knives, hatchet heads, yeah. that then they could you know, make their own handles that would go into those. They had calumet, the symbol of peace, and okay. they were allowed to go beyond the next tribe if you had the calumet. It was your get-out-of-jail card. Oh, okay. All, we also learned from John Swenson the word Missouri means canoe. Oh, I didn't know that. We didn't know it either. We were like, wow, really? why, do, why don't we know this? Marquette, he didn't necessarily encounter river angels all the time because when they got to Arkansas, they heard that there was the Spanish beyond, so they turned around and left. What would it have been like if you were canoeing, knowing there's an armed camp down the river? Well, Tom had a 9 millimeter with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there I we go. suspect we would not have engaged. <laughs> yeah, I just think about what it must be like to, to know that there's hostiles down the river. Well, yeah, and you're on the water, yeah. and you're vulnerable. Right. And you can sink. <laughs> and you're a Catholic priest, oh, and, yeah. and you're just bringing the gospel. You don't have any, anything right. else you're and bringing. You, you have no notion of how well-received you're going to be, but you have to anticipate that there are people who are not going to be appreciative of your message or your yeah. presence. And you encountered that ship that had sank a couple days prior to yeah, your arrival. Yeah, that was, that, was, um, that was really freaky, going by that. It was a tow. I don't know how experienced the pilot was. You know, we heard things, and I don't know what truth there is to it, but I don't know how often he had navigated that section. But when you get below St. Louis, the, the temperament of the river changes considerably. And this is right before the Ohio joins the Mississippi. Yeah. So the Mississippi's already got a lot of power. It's already taken in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, all these big rivers that are funneling into it. And this tow, I don't know how many barges, but it hit a, a wing dam. 
And they're marked. They're all marked on the map. Maybe he just missed it. It was at night. The barges broke free. They were able to corral them. The tow sank. Everybody got off okay. But we go paddling by on our boats, and here's this tow, and it's half submerged. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, don't get too close, boys. Yeah, like a ghost ship. Yeah. Yeah. When we were up north, the water was sufficiently high early in the season that we felt fairly confident. We knew where they were based on the maps that we had, and we watched for that. Yeah. Tim, my neighbor who was in the other canoe, he was our navigator. He's got eagle eyes. I don't know how he does it. He can see things two or three miles away, it seems like. So he could he, he saw them, mm-hmm. and we could also hear them. And that was really ominous at times. You can hear the water rushing over the top of them, a baby waterfall almost. Yeah. It was scarier south on the lower Mississippi than it was up north. But when you go over the top of a wing dam, and you know we have a shallow draft, so you can actually see the water dip. It yeah. goes down, and you're coming back up. We didn't have any problem up north. We did have some issues south because the river is much wider. Yeah. The wing dams go way out into the channel to funnel this behemoth machine that's moving all this water. And because we could see it and hear it and felt that it was pretty shallow, we had to stay way out in the channel. Yeah. And then you look up, and you've got a big boy coming at you with right. 40 barges on yes. it. They're displacing an incredible amount of water. And that was one time that I think all four of us were really concerned. Yeah, I don't know about scared. You're just too into the moment, and you got to think properly. But I don't usually hear my neighbor Tim's voice have a sense of urgency to it, yeah. but I did at that moment. Mm. And so we're, uh, we're maybe 30 yards from the tow. He's, uh, the, the barge has already passed us, and they're low in the water. They're displacing a tremendous amount of water, so they're kicking us, and we're, mm-hmm. we're moving up and down. But we can't go to our right to get closer to the bank because we're going to hit the wing dam. So we stay out in the channel. The engines on those tows, 6,000 horsepower per engine, so they're kicking up a lot of water. Yep. And thankfully, the, the tow captain saw us, and he powered down. Oh, and that helped us out. He didn't have to do that. And a lot of times they don't see you. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're just a blip on the screen. And particularly if you're a yellow Kevlar canoe, you're not going to, aluminum might show up, but not uh, not us. So that that was helpful. And we were really thankful to get by him. <laughs> and, and he was in the distance. And like any other one that we passed, we're still feeling the effects of the up and down. The first time we were in, we were in St. Louis and we, we were caught between two. One going north, one going south. And we had conflicting waves that were bouncing us all over the... And at one point, I looked over at Tim and Bill in the other canoe. I couldn't see them. Yeah. They were in a trough. Oh, boy. Yeah. And it was like, where'd you go, boys? Yeah, like you're out on, uh, on the ocean or something. Yeah. And then they came back up. At times, it could be kind of fun. when you If you square it up properly and you yep. get it, you know, it, 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 it's okay. But it's just at the end of the day, when you've been paddling, you know, some, some days we do 40, 50, one day at 60 plus miles. You know, and you're encountering them, it's nonstop, and it's like, oh, boy, let's get to the bank and have a sandwich here, you know. What about the Ohio when you met it? That was a monster. <laughs> the Ohio is bigger. When the Ohio joins the Mississippi, the Ohio is actually bringing in more water than the Mississippi. It's big. And that day, we, we stayed at Fort Defiance State Park, which has been flooded out so many times, it's not really maintained much anymore. But there's a couple of markers there that tell you of its significance. We wanted to get breakfast the next morning, so we had to cross the now Ohio and Mississippi together. We made it across. The wind had not yet kicked up. When we got back in the water after breakfast, we got bounced all over the place. And I remember thinking, fellas, on a full stomach, this is really not fun. (laughs) (laughs) But we made it, and our next stop was uh, New Madrid. We learned a lot about how the rivers in the United States work. The way that the Army Corps of Engineers looks at the Mississippi River, it's a high-speed barge canal, and that's what the levees and the dams are for. But once you get down to Alton, Illinois, that's where the last lock is, last lock and dam. It's just north of St. Louis. What we put in south of St. Louis, what we had to deal with were these massive barges, and I remember the biggest one we saw was eight wide and eight long. That's 64 barges. These boats have been decommissioned. They're too big. And I don't remember exactly where it was. I want to say it was down close to Vicksburg or maybe a little south of there by the Yazoo River. We passed this massive barge, barges tied together. Mm -hmm. And my canoe 
pulled off to the side because we wanted to make sure we stayed away. And we just happened to get in the right spot where when the massive wave from the back came, picked us up and dropped us on shore. Now we got a fully loaded canoe sitting on shore and you could hear the fiberglass break below you. Crack, 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 crack. Unload the canoe, catch the bottom, put it back in the water. Then we get south down as far as Baton Rouge. That's how far up the ocean-going vessels go. So now we start encountering these massive ocean-going vessels, and we pass them going by, and they're just, they dwarf the barges. It's amazing. I am sitting on the banks of the Mississippi River in New Orleans. The French Quarter is to my back. I'm looking at four freighters heading down the river. These are the ocean freighters, and they're lined up one after the other with not too much room between them. And they're going underneath the bridge near downtown New Orleans. But looking at all this, I cannot believe how intimidating it must have been for LaSalle 2's crew to paddle amongst these freighters on this section of the Mississippi. It must have been absolutely frightening. So Patrick, on April 9th, 1977, the crew of LaSalle 2 makes it to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow, so they essentially complete the reenactment of LaSalle's second expedition, all the way down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. They put up a cross, as LaSalle did. Right. And then the proclamation was read by LaSalle claiming this territory of Louisiana. Ah, yes, for the King of France. For the King of France. It must have been pretty emotional. They've spent eight months reenacting this entire journey to then have it actually come to a completion and probably might have been fairly emotional because now nothing's going to be the same and they've had this crew that's worked well together and now they're going to end up going their separate ways to a great degree for the rest of their lives. In one of the accounts I read of the expedition, one of the crew members mentioned seeing the horizon on the Gulf and Mm -hmm. how meaningful that was and going out to the mile marker out in the surf and just opening their bottles of LaSalle champagne and drinking it. It was just a great moment. You said there's an interesting anecdote about the champagne that they opened when they got to the Gulf of Mexico at the completion of the expedition. That's right, Patrick. It's not every day that one gets a bottle of champagne named for them, let alone an expedition. Yeah, so where'd that come from? Well, what happened was they were trudging through the terrible winter of 1976-77, and at a Holiday Inn there in St. Joe, they meet Len Olson, who had started Tabor Hill Vineyards, and he was enthralled by this amazing expedition. I'd like to create a wine dedicated to your crew, Reed Lewis, and then sell it as a deductible contribution to the expedition because we were still trying to raise enough money to pay for the expedition, even though we were on it. And so uh, one night he came down and said, okay, I'm about ready to make that wine, and I would like you fellows to name it. And so we were tossing around different names, and nothing seemed to please us. And finally he said, you know, I've sat in on a few of your strategy meetings, and one phrase that I keep hearing is, let's decide tomorrow. He said, how do you say that in French? I said, décidons demain. So that became the name of the wine, and he sold it and raised over $5,000 for our crew. But it's a perfect name for a wine. Drink today, let's decide tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) This was a very joyous time, but Reed Lewis was also thinking about what it meant because you had a crew that had some accidents along the way up in Washington Island. Some serious challenges, yeah. And of course, Hebron, Indiana, there was the terrible accident. On the road there in the snow. And not everybody could continue in the canoes. They did continue, as we know, with the liaison team. Helping out. Everybody was at the end. In fact, when we talked to Reed, he discussed that. What was important to Reed was that everybody finished. Yes. 
He got all their men there safely. It was great that the families were there to support them. But I think for Reed, what was important was the team had a mission and they accomplished the mission. It was hugely meaningful. We got some audio of his explaining what that meant. The object is to complete the expedition and not to love each other. And I know that more people, more chance for conflict. Yes. But some people became good friends, some people lost a friendship, yep. and others to this day hate each other 40 years later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> some people can't let go, you know, but, um, but nobody quit. And it would have been so easy to quit at any time because we were coming through inhabited areas. Yep. First, we had a, a canoe capsized. Up in, in Washington Island. Washington Island. Yeah. And that was all students. Well, they could have quit and said, hey, my life is spared this time, I'm quitting. But right. they didn't. And then in northern Indiana, we had four crew members hit by a truck on a portage. In fact, a couple of them couldn't get back in the canoes because one had a broken arm and the other a broken leg. But they stayed with the liaison team. And well, then when we come to a town, they were right there doing the shows. By the time we got to the end... Ken Lewis. ...of the expedition in the Gulf of Mexico, they got back in the canoes, and oh, one kid had a heel-to-hip cast on his leg. But he didn't stay in a canoe very long, because his dad came to me and said, I want my son in that canoe when you're going to New Orleans. And I said, I'm sorry, if that canoe ever turned over, he'd be uh-huh. an anchor. And so his dad hated me. Years later, he said it was the right decision. Now, Father Lauren was not able to remain in the canoes, but he stayed with Leah's that team because he could have just dumped the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But he had serious back problems. Boy, when you see the photograph on the beach at the Gulf of Mexico with in crutches, now there is arm in a sling. And, uh, I, I give those guys so much credit. And to this day, <clears throat> getting back to your question about personalities, there's some students don't want to have anything to do with anybody and others close friendships and everything in between. Tell us a little bit about Reed and his leadership style and, and, and people must have loved and hated him at different times. Of I course mean, you do. You as know, a leader, you, you're always in that. In right, you've got spotlight. 23 guys, not everybody loved Reed. You, you can't have sure. 23 guys agreeing on anything. And it's not a democracy. You know, it wasn't a democracy. We right, tried right. to be a democracy as much as we could, but somebody had to make decisions. Yeah. yeah. You weren't always beloved, right, on the trip? Oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like nor, nor did you expect to be. <laughs> no, well, the thing is, yeah. as I say, I've done five expeditions, and I know there are going to be differences, personalities and so forth, but you got to focus on the job. That's what we did. I'm so grateful and admire everybody on the Joliet Marquette expedition and on the LaSalle expedition. Reed was 34 at the time. Yeah. So we look at them as adults because I'm 18 looking up. And now I think my kids are older yeah. than those guys were. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Could you imagine? But what a daring adventure. Just just to even propose to do something like yeah. this is just... I taught high school for 19 years, and I would never thought of doing anything like that with the kids. Yeah. It, it really it was a huge responsibility. And it was a great adventure that I'm just so glad I got to meet him. And, uh, and he took me on an adventure. Yeah. And a great sacrifice for him, Huge. financially. Financially, I know he, yes, yes. Well, he put his whole life on hold yeah. I, for three more years, four more years. Yeah. He never went back to teaching, um, but he did promote the expedition. He went on on speaking tour and, yeah. and engaging I, as a, people. As, yeah, as a kid, I yeah. saw him perform yeah. with that hat. You know, that Three Musketeers. Sure, hundreds and hundreds of, of performances redid, and, and that's what that's how it. he paid back the debt from the expedition. Because when we came back, I, th- I think he owed $200,000. Oh, that was real money. That was huge money. The whole expedition yeah. cost 600000 So oh he goodness. spent the next 15 years paying back every penny, paid it back. He, wow. didn't, he didn't close up the operation until it was all paid back. Everybody got what was coming to them. Of all the heroes, my brother was perhaps the outstanding example. He'd finish a full day's paddle. He'd set up camp. He'd set up his sleeping bag, and then somebody would come and pick him up, and he would fundraise for the expedition long into the night. He raised close to a million dollars for the expedition to keep us going. And 
I can't think of anybody on the expedition that I admire more for just having this vision and refusing to be discouraged from carrying it out. But, you know, I think it's only fair to say, I never felt I was doing this alone. I mean, I had so much support, and Ken, my brother, was a strong support on the expedition because when maybe a few crew members were not so kind to me, he would encourage me to keep my eye on the goal and don't listen to the naysayers and just keep pushing. And then my parents, who were manning the home office and getting no credit, and then my wife, for whom I will be forever grateful because there would not have been an expedition without her. Setting up all the towns, then being in the liaison team, driving through icy conditions during this coldest winter in the history of the Midwest. That year, Lake Michigan froze totally across. And that is why we had to walk the 527 miles around the base of the lake. And through it all, though, getting all kinds of criticism from certain crew members, uh, she just never even considered quitting and it was there to the end. So Patrick, we're talking a lot about reenactments. So what do you think about reenactments? Because Lorraine Boissonneau, the author of The Last Voyageurs, yes. we asked her this question. We did. We had a pretty good discussion about that. Yeah, so let's play the tape of what she said about reenactments. I think that history is really important and it's not necessary to repeat it to understand it. Sure. Um, but that it can be a source of inspiration and trying to understand where we came from and all of the complications about the interactions with Native Americans on the ground. And, you know, it wasn't just bloodshed and violence all the time, there were relationships and trade. So it was complicated. There are dangers now that are different than the dangers then. We can't recreate history. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean we should stop trying to learn about it and understand how complicated it was. We should never do sort of the 18th, 19th century thing of saying, these were great men. They did great things. It's so, so straightforward. It's never straightforward. Patrick, so I, I want to ask you point blank. What do you think of reenactments? That's a good question. I haven't been on a reenactment itself. I've taken a few adventures of my own, but nothing on that scale. To me, it, it seems like it would be pretty fun. I, I think my hesitation at this stage is I'm not sure I want to sleep outside. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, I'd be okay with that. But again, I know the body adjusts and I'd probably get used to it. So I, I think it'd be pretty cool. I think you'd learn a lot from it. Wait a minute, Patrick. Are you telling me that you would rather be in a five-star hotel ordering room service than sleeping on the ground next to a smoky campfire? Well, not five-star. I don't typically afford that. But, but a three-star and going out to dinner, yeah, that, that would be pretty good. By the way, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm ordering the steak. My question is more philosophical. Sure. Do we need reenactments in the modern age, in the 21st century? Well, Chris, it's hard to say no at this point after talking to Reed Lewis and Ken, because the point of these reenactments is not just the doing, but in the awareness that it creates within society and, and the world for bringing back history, education, teaching people what is possible again, because I think that was the reason Reed did this in the first place, was that people thought that kids of the bicentennial in 1976 were soft and that they would never survive doing some kind of an expedition where they're paddling for 3,300 miles, that they'd be able to do that. So I would come down on the fact that to do one of these things I think is an amazing thing, and I think it's pretty cool. I wrestled with it, too. At first, I thought perhaps one can go too far with being authentic because it's hard to be authentic when you know you can call an ambulance if you have to. LaSalle's men didn't have that luxury. But you know what? The more I think about it is... We all love stories, and I think the reenactment tells a story. I also think that's why we love movies so much. Sure. We watch movies of people dressed up, writing with feathers, George Washington or John Wayne. There's countless reenactments in the movies, and we can't get enough of it. 
Well, and it's like books. They transport you, and it's a way to live vicariously and to identify with the character or characters and think about if you were put in that situation, what might you do different or similar or learn from somebody else's experience? So it's a, it's a great way to learn a great deal about yourself and about being in different situations. And how many people love going to the parade on the 4th of July and seeing the Civil War regiment? Those reenactors, yeah. Marching down the street. And then if you're lucky, they stop in front of you and shoot off their weapons. It's, it's thrilling. On oh, the smoke and the noise. It's amazing. I was a young kid when LaSalle 2 came to Chicago, and it was winter, so hey, I didn't know about it. I was only 10. But secondly, if I was there, let's say, in Canada during the summer, and I saw all the canoes landing with their oars up in the air, and Reed Lewis as LaSalle stepping off in his scarlet red coat. As, as they coast into the shore, and he jumps over the prow. That's thrilling. Yeah, absolutely. It's like something out of a movie, or actually right out of history. You're absolutely right. It is right out of history. So I have to come down in favor of the reenactments. They stir men's souls. I agree. And and women's souls, too. They bring history alive. And yes, there are dangers. There's great dangers, as we learned from this episode. Death store in Door County and, of course, the terrible accident in Hebron, Indiana. For all the terrible things that occurred, there was a lot of wonderful moments as well. And And speaking to these guys, you could sense that spending that kind of intensive time with one another, there was a a definite camaraderie within the group, and it's an experience that nobody else could compare to except that group. So it was almost like they were like a band of brothers. Patrick, you spent a lot of time in Elgin as a young man. Well, we got skates one Christmas, the four of us kids. And so Lord's Park in Elgin was the place to go. And we were there anyway because our grandparents were there. But I went out to Lord's Park to meet up with Reed Lewis. And he said, would you like to go to the Elgin History Museum, which is in Lord's Park? I mean, it looks like a castle. The Lord's family built it. And so we went there and I was delighted and surprised to discover on the second floor of this museum is an exhibit to LaSalle too. Oh, very good. With mannequins and there's Reed Lewis as a mannequin. And, and as you told me, the canoe that he used. The canoe that he and Rich Gross were both in this canoe. we also interviewed. And this canoe, which was built by Ralph Fries and the young men of LaSalle too, it's huge. Much bigger than I thought it was. Not your typical Grumman canoe that we know. No. And you can really see the woodwork, the curved planking. And the hand braiding and tying in the, the ribs to the structure of the canoe. I was pretty close to it, and you can't tell it's fiberglass. It's magical. Looks really authentic. It looks completely authentic. And then secondly, I did notice the fleur-de-lis. I also noticed that the canoes had individual names. Oh. And they had names like Fontenac. So it was really surreal to go to the LaSalle II expedition with Reed Lewis, looking at a mannequin of Reed Lewis dressed as LaSalle. And then there's also... uh, All these artifacts then from the actual reenactment. There's artifacts, and then there's also mannequins of one of the young men, and there's also the priest, Pierre Zenomambre, and that was played on the expedition by a real priest, Father Lorraine Folks, and there's also a mannequin of one of the Native American leaders. It was great, and I, I, I tell everybody, if you're in Elgin, please go to Lord's Park and go check out LaSalle Expedition 2 on the second floor. You will not be disappointed. It's just terrific. When I went out to Reed Lewis's house in Elgin, I learned that he not only has been recognized within the United States for LaSalle too, but the country of France has also honored him. I can only imagine that would be, I would think, a great honor. Oh, absolutely. In 2011, Reed was honored by the French government by being given the Renaissance Francais Award. And not only that, but Reed also won the gold medal for Solidarity and Valor from the French government, La Madi d'Or de Solitaire en Valeur. I think probably most of all, Reed was honored that the town in France, which is about 400 people, and that's where his ancestors came from, honored Reed by making him an honorary member of the town. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool that Reed has been so well recognized for all this work. It was quite a journey that Reed Lewis and his brother Ken led on that expedition from Montreal 
all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. I've enjoyed learning about not only LaSalle's trip, but also this reenactment. As we were researching this expedition, you and I couldn't believe that prior to this, there was another expedition. Exactly. This was not the first reenactment that Reed Lewis had done and organized. Great way to pull out history from a forgotten time, which was Reed Lewis's mission, I think. Patrick, in conclusion to this episode, I thought I would just read the names of the crew members of LaSalle 2. Reed Lewis, Paul Loren Folks, Mark Lieberman, Keith Gorse, Cliff Wilson, Sid Bardwell, John Fialco, George Lacetra, Richard Stillwagon, Gary Braun, Charles Campbell, Terry Cox, John DeFulvio, Randy Foster, Mark Fredenberg, Jorge Garcia, Richard Gross, Sam Hess, Ron Hobart, Bob Kulik, Ken Lewis, Steve Marr, Doug Song, and Bill Watts. The liaison team, Jan Lewis, Marlena Scavazzo, Sharon Baumgartner, Kathy Palmer, and Barton Deep. We definitely want to thank all those that helped us. Reed Lewis, Ken Lewis, Lorraine Boissonneau, Rich Gross, Paul Meineke. We'd like to thank them all for taking the time to sit down with us and talk to us. And we've had a great time. Thank you for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studio. And special thanks to Jill Hugginson for the idea and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. 